Welcome to the November 2022 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. In this month's podcast, we focused on housing, both in Ireland and in the wider European Union context. We spoke with Anne Barrington, who is the chairperson of the board of directors of the O'Coolan Co-Housing Alliance. Before becoming active in O'Coolan, Anne worked in a variety of senior roles in policy, strategy and governance during a career which included not just the public service in Ireland, but also various roles and in many parts of the world. She has a particular interest in the economics of the property market. O'Coolan Co-Housing Alliance is a housing cooperative which has developed a particular housing model for affordable housing to address the continuing housing crisis in Ireland. Their first housing project was completed in 2018. We also spoke with Urin Tuya Batsakan, an economist based in Brussels, who oversees all the research projects at Positive Money Europe. Positive Money Europe is an organisation which advocates a reform of the money system so that it supports a fair, democratic and sustainable economy. It scrutinises the European Central Bank's policies and activities and does research and advocacy on how the financial system in Europe could be improved, including in the area of housing. So Uri, could you start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got involved in Positive Money? It's a bit of a long road to to end up in, in positive money. I started working as a kind of a development officer at, at the UN in Mongolia. And I was involved in a project going around the country and assessing the impact of very harsh winters that have been repeatedly occurring in, in Mongolia. In 2009 and 2010, I think it's of course partly due to our changing climate and fluctuating temperatures and kind of saw going around around the country the, um, the, the dead herd and, and livelihoods destroyed and kind of made me think why and who is behind and what could be changed. And then I got involved in economic systems, changing economic systems and getting interested in, in macroeconomics. So I, I studied in, in Hungary, then I studied in Berlin, and I worked for a few years in a European economic think tank in Brussels. And being involved in like a macroeconomics and, and climate economics and economics of climate change, I kind of have the perspective just you know, being at the, in the house of a herder, of the real impact of climate change that it has on livelihoods, but also having the chance and the opportunity to uh, be among uh, the kind of very senior and influential policymakers in Brussels and, and in other places, how, how decisions are made and how decisions, especially nowadays, reverberate throughout the world and decisions taken in one place have implications in, in another, very much so. So then I got involved in progressive economics. I was always interested in in monetary policy and financial stability, of course, uh, going after reading quite a lot and following the the global financial crisis. And it seems to be the the perpetual crisis that that we're living in. And of course, the underlying and ever worsening climate crisis. And then perhaps I'm in the, the most hopefully will be progressive, but slowly changing area of monetary policy and financial policy. Thanks, Uri. And now we're going to ask the same question of you. How did you come to be involved in housing? Yeah, my name is Anne Barrington and I chair O'Coolan, which is an affordable housing 
body. We uh, develop affordable housing in Ireland, all over the island in theory. And we've built about, let's say, 100 houses so far. And we have about a thousand in our pipeline over the next over the coming years. So uh, this is a, a project that started um, about eight years ago. I became involved three years ago. I'd just done a course. I just retired 41 years from the civil service in Ireland. And I met a member of the executive who invited me to be on the board because I just finished a course in governance and they needed somebody on, on that area. So that's how I got involved. And uh, it's been a steady learning curve since, I have to say, finding out the issues that uh, have to do with the lack of affordable housing in Ireland, in Europe and in many cities around the world. And uh, it's it's just been fascinating to hear about it. And I suppose the biggest issue I have on this subject is I mean, everybody has some reason why housing is, is unaffordable. Some people say planning, some people say price inflation, some say people say uh, whatever. I have focused on the European dimension to this and how structural issues at a European level are impacting how things happen on the ground and how policy is developed nationally. So that's sort of my focus, as it were. I'd love to pursue that because I haven't heard anybody taking that perspective on it. Would you, would you explain, what, throw some light on that European perspective? Yeah, I mean, if, going back to the central bank, the European Central Bank, I mean, the, the European Central Bank has contributed to the financialization of housing by its monetary policy. I don't think it did this intentionally, but it's been the unintentional product of the quantitative easing, the lack of interest rates, uh, low interest rates. And the only return that financiers were getting during from about 2008 onwards was through housing, because it was giving a, a, a very big return compared with other areas which were giving very low returns. So big money with quantitative easing, there were a, a lot of people with assets and money wanted to put their money where there would be a good return. So they put it into housing. Uh, and that's why we've seen the internationalization and financialization of housing, in, especially in big cities around the world. Now, my view is that if this, the European Central Bank, uh, through this policy, by default, has impacted financialization, well, then it should do something to unincentivize the financial system from pursuing housing as a financial commodity and make sure that people, ordinary people, teachers, nurses, guards, whatever, uh, can afford a home because uh, homes have become more and more unaffordable for ordinary working people. I also think this goes also to the Stability and Growth Pact because we saw during the, during the COVID pandemic how the rules for the Stability and Growth Pact could be suspended and large sums of money spent by governments all through Europe for the crisis that occurred. We are in a housing crisis. We have to do the same for housing as we did for COVID. And that, that is my view, that the state has got to get back into the, the business, encouraging housing to be built, supporting building housing and ensuring that it remains affordable for people. And without that, the state has progressively through 
the sort of liberal ideology that has put all the emphasis on markets has got out of the practice of doing that and it should get back into that practice. I think it's very telling that for the first time in nine years, housing ministers got together in Europe this year. They have been the, off the pitch, as it were, uh, in terms of looking at this as a European issue. Now, what they came up with, their declaration that they put out was very tame and uh, didn't mention financialization. However, it was a good start that they actually got together and, and could start the conversation. The European Parliament has done very good work in terms of putting out a, um, a report in 2021 on housing, and it identifies most of the issues that need to be addressed. Of course, European policy affects housing in so many different ways, whether it's environmental policy or industrial policy or state aids or competition policy. So all of these things have to work together to ensure that there's no disincentive for people in organisations like us who are trying to get through the red tape to get access to funding to build affordable housing. Thanks, Anne. Yes, it's, it seems like it's such a European policy is so powerful. And as you say, it works in so many different ways um, that it's just incredibly important to, to think about it and how it could be improved. Uri, do you have any reaction to what she said? Would you be broadly in agreement? Yeah, definitely. I, I was perhaps I can I can start with the role of the central bank and, and housing, basically through monetary policy. So manipulation of the interest rates, it affects, of course, the, the housing prices and the borrowing costs because mortgage borrowing constitutes around 77% of total euro area household borrowing. It's very important. It also affects the housing supply. So construction activities, they rely on bank lending and interest rates uh, change, you know, bank lending and the, and the cost of credit. And also after the global financial crisis, the central banks developed uh, macro prudential tools as a guardian of financial stability to kind of keep an eye on the development in the housing market so it doesn't the, the housing bubbles don't lead to to the crash that uh, we've seen uh, post-global financial crisis and they develop kind of tools such as you know adjusting the loan to value ratios or debt uh, to the service to income ratios of households that there is no excessive borrowing and of course monetary policy is you know interest rate channel and monetary policy are quite blunt tools they're not very much targeted as they are and there are a lot of uh, I think structural issues and I do agree with Anne here and I do agree that there has been quite a lot of unintended kind of consequences in the last 10 years especially given lower inflation and low interest rates the, the kind of fall in the interest rate led to more demand in housing and appreciation of housing as an as an asset value right and also the large quantity of easing that we have that started uh, in 2015 and went for seven years the kind of saw the traditional kind of financial instruments with bonds and stocks the, the the value the yield of those going down so now the investors look for more yields more profitable investment and they saw housing as an entirely <laughs> different class asset class on its own so a lot of money poured into that which increased the housing crisis further 
and decreased housing affordability, given that incomes of, of the people in this time did not rise. Um, so the debt servicing costs also increased, which means they needed to put a lot more of their income in order to reach the housing ladder. But also increasing the interest rate as it does now, this does not really lead to housing affordability or increase in housing affordability either. It leads to kind of general contraction and it leads to, there's some research that it leads to higher debt servicing costs and generally lower housing accessibility. Also, housing is, a, is the biggest component of wealth in a household consumption. So it's probably the most important, the biggest asset they own. And in the last 10 years of this kind of expansionary monetary policy, so people who are holding this, uh, this wealth, their, their wealth appreciate in value. Uh, which means they could put this as collateral and get, you know, another mortgage um, and then perhaps another. <laughs> and then given that the unchecked nature of our rental kind of income in different countries and especially in, in bigger cities, this become uh, a kind of money creation in itself. So increase in the, in the uh, unaffordability and also higher debt servicing capacity so a bigger proportion of household income going now to just service their debt and not only mortgage debt, but in fact, rent, utility bills, maintenance costs. This creates a big burden and especially for mortgage, this creates potentially a scenario where a lot of people default on their mortgage and it has macro implications in terms of financial stability, as we have seen already post-global financial crisis. So as I said before, monetary policy is that especially the conventional tools are a very much blunt instrument. All the structural issues need to be tackled. I think social housing needs to be more affordable and increase in the access to households credit to access the housing ladder that needs to be there. What we also see that the, the kind of mortgage borrowers were used to be younger and perhaps middle and even low income households, but this is becoming more and more to kind of older age cohorts with already built up wealth. So this is a bit worrying. And I think given that a lot of regulatory changes needs to be made, such as increasing the taxes on the secondary home or the third, uh, having perhaps rental caps in, in some places, and also putting on, on some uh, inheritance tax on different assets. Of course, it's a lot more complex than this, of course, but I think there are a lot of solutions out there. There's quite a lot of research and thinking done on this. And I do feel like it is really a, a, a matter of will and mobilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to come back to Anne and then maybe you might respond, uh, Yuri. We're in a very happy position, I think, we're having Pascal Donoghue. That's our finance minister at the moment, and he's changing his position in a couple of weeks' time. But he is remaining on as the chair of the European finance ministers. And it's a position of, I think, great influence for potential influence. And I'm not sure we use it very much, or if we do, it's not clear how we use it. But and what are the simple messages that you would give to Haskell Donoghue to get from Europe? I mean, we've gone through all the problems, but are there, are there relatively simple things from your analysis of what Europe could do? I mean, we've seen what they can do when there's a war and we've seen what they can do when COVID comes about, all the rules go out the window, basically. So what should they do about the crisis in housing? Well, I think they should treat it like the real emergency that it is. 
And that would mean changing these growth and stability pact rules and ensuring that finance for housing, state borrowing for housing is off balance sheet. I mean, it's a simple thing. And given the crisis around Europe, I have no doubt that there would be a lot of support for this if it was proposed. And given uh, Mr. Donoghue's um, very prestigious position and his ability uh, to persuasion, um, I, I think we would have a very good chance of doing it. However, I do think there is essentially a prevailing ideology on this, that you know, the ideology suggests that the market should solve the problem. And it clearly hasn't and will not. We've, we, we had, we've had a housing crisis in Ireland now for over 20 years. And you know, the, it was left to the market and the market clearly failed. So uh, now we have to do something different. And I see the only solution to this. And we were able to do this you know, in the 50s and 60s when we had no money whatsoever. We were able to have proper, decent, affordable social housing in Ireland. And we had much lower homelessness rates. We have 11,000 people now who are homeless, which is just the tip of the iceberg of, of what the housing crisis is all about. In Finland, for example, they have... 1,000 people they count as homeless. And among that are people who are living at home, adult children living at home. We don't even count these people. And yet we see that they're putting off having their children much later. People are having kids much later. They're accessing uh, their own home much later. No, it's a crisis. And we need to change the ideology, the prevailing ideology about what's going on in this area. Thanks, Anne. Just a quick question before we uh, go to Uri. When you mentioned that a lot of good work was done in the 50s and 60s when there was very little money, how was that paid for at the time? Well, the, state, the state did it. I mean, they built 7,000 uh, social houses by borrowing money and paying back. And, you know, the state can borrow because it's got big purse strings and people know, banks know that they won't default. And um, so they can, they can do it. Uh, there is no problem about the state accessing financing and there was no problem for the last 10 years given um, the low interest rates they could have borrowed enormous sums of money and this problem could now be solved we should not be going through this at this point but we are where we are so we have to change the mindset at this point Thanks. Thanks, Anne. Uri, do you have any response or other opinions? Yeah, I unfortunately will have to bring uh, more bad news to to the bad news um, on the housing front, especially now we're, we're living through an energy crisis. We're living through an energy-induced, imported energy-induced inflation crisis. And if we before talked about kind of a mortgage and housing affordability, the rising energy bills, that costs extra that is exerting extra pressure on household incomes very much so and the kind of the less well-off parts of of the population are living in the worst isolated and the worst performing buildings and paying the most of their share of income to energy to housing related costs and it's perhaps going to to get worse if there is no support uh, right and um, I think this uh, this uh, this is a very very big problem and if these people are also mortgage holders then at some point they will have to make a choice to whether to pay their mortgage energy bills food <laughs> the the price of food also going up you know their their children's education or this kind of thing so 
they have to cut. This could create, uh, as, as I've talked about before, financial instability if unchecked. And um, the figure is not negligible. And one in 10 households in Europe are living in mortgage areas related to you know, payments, uh, rents, utility bills, and then now the utility component even getting bigger. And this this point, this uh, share is, is around 14% in Ireland, almost half in, in Greece and more than quarter in, in Cyprus and in, in Croatia and in different countries. So it's unevenly distributed as well. So this becomes also a matter of monetary policy because the monetary policy transmission mechanism should work smoothly. And if a lot of the part of household income is very much blocked by all of these immovable things like you know energy bills and and and, and housing then they're really not not consuming and then their also well-being is is very much hurt in in the process uh, so now that I've given a bit of bad news, perhaps I can come back to to the solution of uh, what the positive money is proposing. So, as you know, we're <laughs> macroeconomists and people were looking at monetary policy and somehow we ended up in, in housing retrofitting in the last year and a half. Uh, we've been working and, and reading and researching a lot on, on energy efficiency, renewables. Of course, uh, home renovations, energy efficient home renovations. How this idea came about is to give a bit of a background. The European Central Bank has a program called Targeted Longer Term Refinancing Operations. This is basically how banks kind of borrow from central bank. And because we had a very low inflation environment in the last uh, 10 years, they wanted to kind of stimulate the economy and have uh, credit flowing to the real economy through the banking sector. So the Teltro program was kind of a way to do that. And what banks would be getting is basically getting money to borrow money from the ECBs. So they have a negative interest rate, minus 0.5%. And if they meet a certain lending threshold, which means if they keep their lending to the real economy more or less constant, they could borrow down to negative 1%. So perhaps uh, nobody, you know, <laughs> we don't borrow from the bank at negative rates to, uh, to do stuff, but banks were, were doing this for quite some time. And the last uh, Teltros were for kind of year duration loans. And the idea is that uh, two researchers uh, wrote a paper for us and you can check it on our website. It's called Green Teltros. So why not attach climate and environmental criteria to this lending so it is directed towards projects that would uh, support efforts uh, against uh, climate change. And then stemming from that paper, uh, me and uh, Stan, uh, our director, we zoomed in into the energy efficient renovation sector. And we realized that 36% of CO2 emissions coming from the building sector, while green kind of energy efficient retrofitting is prohibitively expensive to do at the same time. So why not use the bank funding channel throughout hundreds and thousands of branches across Europe to, to give out loans at attractive interest rates so people can have affordable access to energy efficiency renovations, which are, of course, are going to increase their comfort, health, well-being, not to mention the costs of their energy bills. As you know, Europe has this very ambitious target uh, and policy of renovation wave that aims to cut building 
emissions by 60% by 2023. And of course, there is a funding gap <laughs> and uh, private finance and state alone can, cannot do it. Private finance needs to step up and public finance, as, as Anne said, should be directed to the most vulnerable households and social housing, uh, public buildings, schools, hospitals first. And then how the rest of the, of you know, just uh, residential property owners, um, maybe small business holders, how they can, you know, do their share and, and renovate their homes is through private financing channel, through bank-based financing. And EVCB, European Central Bank, has so... There is money, <laughs> there is a potential solution that could reach millions of people through distributed decentralized banking network across Europe. I think it's a matter of will and, and doing this. And in that regard, we're also having a big campaign in Europe, especially focusing in France and Spain. It's called Unlock Renovation. Our campaign team is working very hard together with partners to make re uh, energy efficiency renovations affordable so that it decreases the housing costs so that it, it ensures that there is no energy-related or default-related financial crisis again. So a household can dedicate a big part of their income to rather their consumption and well-being and, and you know, health and education costs rather than be bogged down by housing and energy-related costs. So if you're interested, please do check our campaign Unlock. So monetary policy can step up, yes. <laughs> Very much so, through targeted uh, greening their policies, yes. I'd love to put it to Anne about your perspective, Anne, and what you've been talking about. And it, it to a certain extent, the problem is one of ideology. We're probably going to have, like with Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach, we're probably going to be even further neoliberal than we have been, maybe, I don't know. But how do we educate? Is it a question of education? Is it a question of knowledge that people can speak knowledgeably to politicians to make the change happen, that we understand what's going on. I mean, we know, the, as you said, that the, the system, the market-driven system hasn't worked. Um, so do people realise that? What, what needs to be done? I think there's a growing re realisation that this is the case. And I think there has been a, a slight change in, in government policy um, in, through Housing for All, Though it's not, it hasn't gone far enough, it needs to be much more radical than what was outlaid there. But I think the politicians are getting some of the messages. I, I know that a guy called Rory Hearn has done a lot of work in this area. He's just published a book called Gaffs, which seems to be doing very well. And it's, it's a very good explanation of where we are, where we came from in Ireland and what we could do about it. It doesn't talk about the European dimension very much but from a national perspective it's very very interesting and last week for example there was a very big demonstration in Dublin on housing which was was done by the trade unions we see in recent polls that housing among all age cohorts concern about housing because this really affects you know grandparents parents uh, and their kids so it's a multi-generational thing and i think irish people tended to look at their house as a, an asset you know to be traded uh, with and make money out of but now they see the consequences of that and how that has, has huge impacts on the ability of their own kids to afford 
home and they now want that system to change. I mean, I think that there is a growing realisation of this among the older generation as well as how it has affected the younger generation. I mean, you still hear some people say, oh, it was really hard in my day to, to get a mortgage, to get a house. But in, in fact, if you look at the ratio of house prices and incomes, um, there, there's just no equivalence between 20, 30 years ago and now. And, and then others say, oh, these kids are all going off on holidays um, uh, and taking a flight this, there and there. Yes, but 30 years ago, it cost an arm and a leg to go anywhere. Now it's very, very cheap. And why wouldn't they if they have no hope? of getting their own home in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Are they to postpone every part of enjoyment of life? So, you know, I think there's still some work to be done, but I think the dial is changing and politicians will eventually catch up. But in the meantime, we've lost a generation, you know, people who are in unacceptable living conditions. So maybe, uh, Yuri, would you respond? Is there anything you've learned about getting effectively i think what we're talking about is a citizen's mobilization of some kind to make action happen so what would you say the results of your campaigns at a european level about knowledge and democratization of of the monetary system what should we do <laughs> yeah I, I, this is a this is a great question of course when we start kind of talking about the jargon the, and there's plenty in finance and monetary policy then <laughs> I, I totally understand why people would not be interested but how we get people mobilized is and I think your podcast is very timely in this regard is uh, through something that people really do care about and they do care about their home they do care about their bills they do care about the environment and climate, uh, especially young people. That's number one concern for them and how this relates to monetary policy and what finance should do and what monetary policy can do. Then they really get kind of interested and involved. And I think in that regard, our campaign that combines uh, housing, that combines climate and with a sprinkle of monetary policy should have the intended effect. And I have to say it's going quite well. It's still a, a work in progress, but uh, citizen mobilization and, you know, especially progressive voices and diverse voices from different countries, different ages, different income groups, they give us the credibility and the push to then bring these issues to, to the big policymakers and demand action. This is, this is how things should be done. This is how things hopefully will be done. Listen, I wish you all the best in your housing, you know, all the initiatives. Yeah, we, we're, we, we struggle, you know, because we, we don't fit into any real category mm. of what housing can be subsidized by the state. So we've had to, we sell all our houses as well. That's how we finance them. And we get bank loans, build the houses. But the part we can't get financing for is the pre-planning process. Things like the environmental standards, the BAT reports, the not weed surveys or whatever. And these mount up for a small organization that's taking a very low premium. Uh, we take 5% maximum off the top. This, well, we've been doing it by philanthropy, but that's not sustainable, you know. But we can't get banks, even state banks, to give us loans for this little period. We need a loan which would last seven years because it takes seven years to plan and get through the planning process and build uh, and then when we sell the houses we can pay off the loan but we cannot get a bank to give us that loan and we can't get the state banks to give us that loan 
So we are really struggling for that. So we have this pipeline that we hope we'll be able to finance, but we beg, borrow, and we don't steal it, but we beg and borrow it all over the place. So, so if you hear of any, any organization that's willing to give us a loan for seven years to finance our pre-planning expenses, we'd be very glad to hear of it. I had a book group around the um, other day and we did Rory Hearn's book and the, the, you know, the six people there said that it changed their mind on housing. I mean, but I think you've got to really start having conversations all the time with people and just keep bringing it up and just saying, you know, this is not inevitable. 11,000 people homeless is not inevitable. You know, all our, our young people staying at home with their parents is not inevitable. It's as a result of bad policy that we need to change and change fast and change radically. And what I really object to is part of the officialdom says, oh, but the EU won't let me do this, which is absolute nonsense. You know, I mean, it's absolute nonsense. It's, they say, oh, procurement issues, state aid policy, whatever. But, you know, why can other countries do it? And we can't. There's no excuse. If you go to Finland and look at what they're doing, it is just remarkable. And yet we can't seem to get our act together. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think it's ideology, I have to say. One thing I do think that will make a difference in Ireland is the fact that there is a commitment to a constitutional referendum on the right to housing. And I think that's the opportunity for a lot of this debate to push forward and, and get people thinking about the real implications of the financialization of housing, monetary policies, influence on housing. So I think we have a national possibility here to do that relatively soon. That was Anne Barrington, who's the chairperson of the board of directors of the Okulon Co-Housing Alliance, and Urintuya Batsikan, an economist who oversees Positive Money Europe's research. Many thanks to both of them for their participation. You can find links to the Unlock campaign and the Okulon website on our Bridging the Gaps podcast page on the FASTA website. Thanks also, as always, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp, Garamil Magat Leisha. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and tune in next month for our next installment.